Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I am with a wonderful group of actors that are going to take us on a journey of discovery. This is going to be a kid's show now um, through act two of Henry V. Um, and we have a couple people joining us who were not here for act one. So I'm going to ask them the same questions as I did to our correspondents who were here for act one, which is your name, the characters you're playing, where you are, and what is your history with this fabulous history? Um, so <laughs> let's start with Alexander. Oh, hello. My name's Alexander. Um, I'm currently in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I am playing Court, Gloucester, Jamie, King of France, Nim, and Westmoreland. And yeah, I, I got to see this play um, in the park in the early aughts with Liev Schreiber playing Henry. And it was cool except for they did it during the second Iraq war and no one really knows why they did this play during that time. I remember the Village Voice review saying, Iraq my brain, why they did this play. But um, it was a good production and I was able to it made an imprint on my mind. So I'm happy to be playing with it now, 20 years later or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Um, let's see, who is, ah, Zoe, Zoe G. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so yes, I feel like this is a play I always think I know. And then I realize I'm thinking of Henry the fourth <laughs> and uh, I'm like, oh, that really good part in Henry V. And I'm like, no, that's in the fourth. Um, not, but that's not to say this isn't such a great play. Uh, but I haven't seen it in a long time. I know the Kenneth Branagh version. And I recently rewatched uh, a really beautiful clip from it after Ian Holm died, who I think played Fluellen in that film. Um, what else? Yeah. Oh, I'm playing uh, Grand, Pr Grand Pre. Grand Grandpere, how do, how do you want me to <laughs> It's a really good question. I'm going to defer to all of the people in this room who speak French, as I do not. Um, when we come upon any of the French, which of which there is a lot. <laughs> I also do not. So that would be great. Um, Pistol, who I love, and Ram, Rambur, Rambur's. <laughs> It's going to be fun. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, and I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm in Philly suburbs right now. Hell yeah, Philly. Woo! Yeah. Um, wonderful. Thank you. Um, Julia. Hello. Uh, my name is Julia Larson. I'm currently in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, I think like Zoe, this is, I, I know Henry Ford, one and two so well that sometimes I'm just sort of like, oh yeah, you know, just like the, the third in that series, but not at all. <laughs> um, so I, I, I definitely read it and studied it in like my undergrad um, and have seen, of course, the Kenny B version. And I think a couple of like bare bones productions and uh, the, uh, the one with, uh, was it, was it, Tom Hiddleston, who did the 
The Hollow Crown. Yeah. That was what it was called. I kept thinking it was Hearts of Gold in my head, but that's, (laughs) um, yeah, I, I, I've watched that one relatively recently. Um, but I don't know it as well as the others. So I'm excited to dive in and I'm going to be reading Fluellen. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and (laughs) Jesse. Hi, uh, I'm Jesse Van Buren. I am also in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Um, I am playing uh, Bardolph, Cambridge, Constable, Erpingham, and York. Uh, and I don't think I've ever actually seen this play live. I've seen the kind of Brownock version. Um, I've read it many times over the years. Um, I think probably like the most expensive production experience I have with it is let's say two or three years ago, uh, a, a, a class of students of mine put together a, uh, I said like 30 minute um, five person version of Henry the Fourth, parts one and two and Henry the Fifth. Um, so as with everyone else, my recollection of what's in which play is sort of where exactly Henry the Fourth part two ends and but yeah wonderful excellent well i am i'm very excited um to be going into act two because for some reason i just don't remember act two i remember (laughs) a lot of act three and a lot of um act four because that's a big battle scene but this one i i my i'm i'm fascinated to uh to dive in so izzy i'm gonna have you just go right ahead with our our second chorus speech um and then we will get to the end of that and discuss okay whenever you're ready my dear now all the youth of england are on fire and silken dalliance in the wardrobe lies now thrive the armorers and honors thought reigns solely in the breast of every man they sell the pasture now to buy the horse following the mirror of all christian kings with winged heels as English Mercuries. For now sits expectation in the air and hides a sword from hilts unto the point with crowns imperial, crowns and coronets promised to Harry and his followers. The French, advised by good intelligence of this most dreadful preparation, shake in their fear and with pale policy seek to divert the English purposes. O England, model to thy inward greatness, like little body with a mighty heart, what mightst thou do, that honor would thee do, were all thy children kind and natural. But see thy fault, France hath in thee found out, a nest of hollow bosoms which he fills with treacherous crowns, and three corrupted men, one Richard, Earl of Cambridge, and the second Henry, Lord Scroop of Masham, the third Sir Thomas Gray, Knight of Northumberland, have for the guilt of France, oh, guilt indeed, confirmed conspiracy with fearful France. And by their hands, this grace of kings must die, if hell and treason hold their promises, ere he take ship for France and in Southampton. Linger your patience on, and will digest the abuse of distance. Force a play. 
The sum is paid, the traitors are agreed. The king is set from London and the scene is now transported, gentles, to Southampton. There is the playhouse now, there must you sit and thence to France shall we convey you safe and bring you back, charming the narrow seas to give you gentle pass. For if we may, we'll not offend one stomach with our play. But when the king come forth, and not till then, unto Southampton do we shift our scene. Thank you, Izzy. I didn't realize that they had the shift key during um, Shakespeare's time. It's pretty cool. Um, okay, cool. So tell me about this, Is um, How think- is this different? Yeah, from, from, our, from our opening prologue chorus. The first one is so much more like grand in a way of like in, in language of being like, I'm trying to be like embody all of this. Whereas this is like, like I have some exposition to get out there, but I'm going to say it nicely. Um, <laughs> and uh, like, there's some fun, a little alliteration moments, but it's usually not more than two words at once, which I feel like isn't as common in Shakespeare. So it's just like, I'm giving you a taste, but I'm not actually like going to do like five words all starting with F's or whatever. <laughs> interesting and the nagging is much um more down yes <laughs> there's just one line of like we'll we'll try to do a good play but most of it's like i'm here to set the scene um i'm gonna use pretty words but not like before and i feel like maybe that's because we have so much more like this is just this act to me is more set up even though you'd think that would be act one but <laughs> it seems more like a setup than the act one or definitely than act three and because yeah. act three you're already getting into action and yeah. uh, all that so that that's what stuck out to me I guess and there's a lot of parenthetical phrases as well um, yeah I actually when I was editing the script that we were going to use I I found myself going back to the folio and adding more and more of the punctuation and capitalization in the folio just because what I realized like I love using the folio (laughs) Alexander's like yes um I love using the folio with little kids and teaching them how to read um the sort of strange spelling things and they I I have found if you introduce it right at the beginning of rehearsal they just get it immediately but it also gives you a lot of the nouns that you want you know it's like it's just very good at pointing things out in the text that are important to emphasize and with the parentheticals um, in modern editions they're almost all taken out and just put into commas and there's something that like vocally you do when something is in parentheses that's I think very useful. Um, wonderful, thank you, Izzy. Um, were there any other, did anyone else have any sort of observations about this this speech before we move on to 2-1? Um, I guess just a, a, a small note that we were talking about beforehand is how uh, we reading uh, the, the, I guess the chorus's take on this can help influence your reading of the, the rest of the scenes. Um, specifically, we were talking about um, chorus's line about France and how they shake in their fear yeah. and how uh, you can use that, like are, are the French being confident? And I guess me as Dauphin, I'm a little, um, I don't carry the opinion of the room in that matter, but like, do you want to play to the chorus? Do you want to play against the chorus? And uh, just using that as a, a roadmap for the rest of the play. Yeah. 
that's the, yes, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting how, um, <laughs> how terribly pro English this chorus is. As well. <laughs> Not a lot of neutrality there. Um, <laughs> Isn't it also fairly unique in the plays to just have like a chorus like this to just be like, here's what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in Henry the fourth part two, we got this awesome, strange, bizarre figure of rumor as the prologue which is wonderful because it's like this supremely unreliable narrator to start off a play. Um, And then we have a very strange epilogue that is very like topical for the time that the play was written in, but is really kind of a headache if you're trying to do it in production. Because it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. we're going to bow for the queen now? Wait, what? (laughs) Why are we talking about Old Castle? What the fuck? Um, So, and it even comments like, this is a very bad epilogue. And like, (laughs) it's What do you what do you do with that? I'm, uh, I'm totally gonna... as a director, it's like, oh God. Um, anyway, I'm out myself and say that I've never read nor seen Henry for Part One or Two. I feel oh. embarrassed to say that. So if I'm missing something huge, please someone let me know. Oh no, it's it's all good. Um, there, there we're actually that's a wonderful transition into our next scene because we're gonna um see a couple of the characters that appear in henry the fourth parts one and two um with a new character nim who we have not met before um but bardolph is a character that's been with us since uh henry the fourth part one and is very famous for his particular like Per, you know there's like people who are sort of perma stoned he's like perma mm. drunk with a rosy very rosy complexion and so they they talk about his very red face all the time and then pistol is this sort of crazy character that we met in Henry the fourth part two and then mistress quickly is the wonderful mistress of malapropism um that was there in uh parts one and two and after saying she'll abide no swaggerers in uh part two she married the swaggerer which is i think wonderful and very shakespearean and very human wonderful so let's let's jump right in um this is our first scene in prose hooray prose and yeah let's just let's just go through see how far we get and then we can sort of talk about the, the characters well met, Corporal Nim. Good morrow, Lieutenant Bardolph. What's our ancient pistol and you friend yet? For my part, I care not. I say little, but when time shall serve, there shall be my smiles. But that shall be as it may. I dare not fight, but I will wink and hold out mine iron. It is a simple one, but what though? It will toast cheese, and it will endure cold as another man's sword will, and there's an end. I will bestow a breakfast to make you friends, and we'll be all three sworn brothers to France. Hmm. Let it be so, good Corporal Nim. Faith, I will live so long as I may, that's the certain of it. And when I cannot live any longer, I will do as I may. That is my rest, that is the rendezvous of it. It is certain, Corporal, that he is married to Nell quickly, and certainly she did no wrong, did you wrong, for you were troth plight to her. I cannot tell. Things must be as they may. Men may sleep and they have their 
throats about them at that time, and some say knives have edges. It must be as it may. Though, though patience be a tired mare, yet she will plod. There must be conclusions. Well, I cannot tell. Here comes Ancient Pistol and his wife. Good corporal, be patient here. How now, mine host, Pistol? Base tyke calls thou me host. Now by this hand I swear I scorn the term, nor shall my knell keep lodgers. No, by my troth, not long, for we cannot lodge and board a dozen or fourteen gentlewomen that live honestly by the prick of their needles, but it will be thought we keep a body house straight. Oh, well-a-day lady, if he be not hewn now, we shall see willful adultery and murder committed. Good lieutenant, good corporal, offer nothing here. Pish. Pish for thee, Iceland dog, thou prick-eared cur of Iceland. Good corporal Nim, show thy valor and put up your sword. Will you shog off? I would have you solace. Solace, egregious dog. O oh, viper vile, the solace in thy most marvelous face, the solace in thy teeth and in thy throat and in thy hateful lungs, yea, in thy maw, purdy, and which is worse from within that nasty mouth. <coughs> I do retort the solace in thy bowels, for I can take, and pistols cock is up, and flashing fire will follow. I am not Barbison, you cannot conjure me. I have an humor to knock you indifferently well. If you grow foul with me, Pistol, I will scour you with my rapier as I may in fair terms. If you would walk off, I would prick your guts a little in good terms as I may, and that's the humor of it. Oh, braggart, vile, and damned furious white, the grave doth gape, and doting death is near. Therefore, exhale. Hear me, hear me what I say. He that strikes the first stroke, I'll run him up to the hilt as I am a soldier. An oath of mickle might and fury shall abate. Give me thy fist, thy forefoot to me give. Thy spirits are most tall. Cut thy throat one time or other in fair terms. That is the humor of it. Couple of gorge, that is the word. I defy thee again. O hound of Crete, thinks thou my spouse to get? No, to the spittle go, and from the powdering tub of infamy fetch forth the la lazar kite of Cressid's kind, doll tear sheet, she by name, and her espouse. I have, and I will hold to the, to the quondam quickly, for the only she, and Paca, there's enough to go to. Mine host Pistol, you must come to my master and your hostess. He is very sick and would to bed. Good Bardolph, put thy face between his sheep and do the office of a warming pan. He's very ill. Away, you rogue. By my troth, he'll yield a, the crow a pudding one of these days. Uh, the king has killed his heart. Good husband, come home presently. Come, shall I make you two friends? We must go to France together. Why the devil should we keep knives to cut one another's throats? Let floods or swell and fiends for food howl on. You'll pay me the eight shillings I won of you at betting? Base is the slave that pays. That now I will have. That's the humor of it. As manhood shall compound, push home. By this sword, he that makes the first thrust, I'll kill him. 
By this sword, I will. Sword is an oath, and oaths must have their course. Corporal Nim, and thou wilt be friends, be friends, and thou wilt not, why then be enemies with me too. Prithee, put up. A noble shalt thou have, and present pay, and liquor likewise will I give to thee, and friendship shall combine, and brotherhood. I'll live by Nim, and Nim shall live by me. Is not this just? For I shall settler be unto the camp, and profits will accrue. Will accrue. Give me thy hand. I shall have my noble. And cash most justly paid. Well, then that's the humor of it. As ever you come of women, come in quickly to Sir John, a poor heart. He is so shaked of a burning quotidian tertian that it is most lamentable to behold. Sweet man, come to him. The king hath run bad humors on the night. That's the even of it. Nim, thou hast spoke the right. His heart is fracted and corroborate. The king is a good king, but it must be as it may. He passes some humors and careers. Let us condole the, let us condole the night for lambkins we will live. So a very different scene than um, we've seen so far <laughs> yeah. in the play. <laughs> um, very much to me, this like connects us back to the Henry Fourth plays um, because we had this sort of constant back and forth between the court and the tavern and the countryside and then sort of zooming all over the place a very sort of cinematic way um but so this is our first sort of glimpse back into that that uh tavern world um so i was just wondering for those of you reading what what are what are your sort of impressions of the characters and and this scene just generally i i love it because it's just like because they're also in Merry Wives, aren't they? Or at least some yeah, of them. Yeah, 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 they are. So it's Absolutely. like this kind of like return of your favorite SNL character kind of vibe, <laughs> you know? Like it's like, it's a, like a crowd pleaser, I'm guessing, is why he kept throwing them in there. So it's just kind of, um, it's a fun, it's a worthy diversion. It's a fun aside, you know, just the kind of like, and here we go with the dick jokes. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Um, Andrew. Oh, I just wanted to uh, say two things. One that um, it's funny. I was just reading. Uh, I was given a, a book for Christmas um, called Gentleman's Blood by Barbara Holland. And it's about dueling, the history of dueling. Oh, wow. And uh, I was just reading it this morning. I, for I forgot this scene was in this act. And um, so it's really interesting uh, that they're, this is a dueling scene. Of course, they're not really gentlemen. They're they're of the lower classes, but they're um, they are in their way following this kind of etiquette of dueling. Yes. And I learned that dueling was huge uh, as a uh, societal uh, pastime, I guess, uh, as a means of um, settling disputes at this time. And it's part of why Shakespeare includes so many duels. And so many um, challenges like this, all this language about who's challenging who and uh, who's at fault and how are they going to make amends. Um, anyway, it was very interesting uh, <laughs> echo of what I was just reading this morning. Um, but I also wanted to wonder aloud, and maybe somebody knows a little bit about the, more about this than I do, but um, the characters 
here have changed. Of course, uh, Bardolph um, changed uh, since uh, Henry IV, Part II. Of course, Bardolph and um, Quickly are here, but uh, what's happened to Poins and yeah. where have Pistol and uh, Nim come from? And um, what I'm wondering about is changes in the company, the acting company, and mm. uh, you know who who left the company or who died yeah. <laughs> and who came in because they would have been the same actors playing these roles. And the, I think the only reason that you would change a character uh, would be because the actor wasn't available when you're writing for a specific company like that. That I think that's a, that's a wonderful um, observation, Andrew. And I think this is around the time, the only departure that I know of is of course, the very famous departure of Will Kemp, who was their clown, right. who had a lot of uh, issues with Shakespeare and he did not get along. So the saying goes, so he did a jig all the way to somewhere. Right. I don't know. It was like, <laughs> okay. But um, the, the nature of the sort of clown character changed from the clown who we laugh at to the fool who we laugh with. Um, and 1599, which is uh, the time that this, I mean, 1599, if anyone is looking more into the time period, um, James Shapiro's book, 1599, A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare is incredible. Love um, So good. And it was the year that he wrote Henry V, Julius Caesar, as you like it, and began Hamlet. So like not a bad year, um, kind of extraordinary. Um, but it, this is all around that time, as you like it, right, is, is a representation of, of that different kind of fool. I believe that's around the time that Robert Armin came into their company. And this is the this is the touchstone fool, the sort of melancholy, the one who sings, the one who's very, very witty and dry, um, as opposed to the just sort of craziness of the early clowns. Um, so that's I think there is something also that I wonder if Falstaff could <laughs> this is a very silly thing to say, but could fit in this play. Um, he's such a huge like personality he kind of fills up any play that he's in, both literally and figuratively. And I do wonder if maybe he just didn't have a place in this play. Like Shakespeare couldn't hold the, the bigness of Falstaff with the bigness of what Henry has to be in this play. It was like just a little bit too much of a juggling um, I remember that's what um, our, our, our mentor always used to say um, of, because he kind of promises that we'll see Falstaff again at the end of Henry the fourth part two, right, right. but then we don't, but then apparently Queen Elizabeth was such a huge fan of Falstaff that she said, show me a play where he's in love. And this is where Mary wives of Windsor comes from as uh, Ronnie Cartier, the head of drama at Lambda calls it the only sitcom that Shakespeare ever wrote. Right. Um, and one of his only plays that's almost entirely in prose and was probably written in about 10 days, which is crazy. Um, but so really, really fun. These this this gang, it also seems like and this is something we touched upon and we're, we're still going through in Henry the Fourth Part Two, that it's like Shakespeare starts trying out new comedic characters like he tries out Pistol and it's like Falstaff goes to the background. It's like Falstaff was so popular. It's like, okay, so who's our next 
popular character going to be like we got to get new action figures you know so like so it's going to be pistol the one who like uses a whole bunch of greek and roman mythology and swears a lot but is sort of a capitano figure you know that's all bravado and is really a coward um and then we've got you know and then we've got nim who kind of repeats himself all so it's it does seem to me like he's trying to sort of get this big gang together this comedic gang that we're going to have although two of them are going to meet rather a sticky end in the middle of the play um which to me is always just very tragic but anyway i'm so sorry um discuss <laughs> i was just gonna kind of add on that as well well pistol actually is in henry four part two yes. um but um i think coins you you mentioned which was near and dear to my heart um <laughs> my first role but um i think points although he's part of the tavern gang was so highly connected to to prince hal that it would be kind of weird to see him without prince hal because yeah. so much of his personality is like going back and forth with prince hal specifically or falstaff mm. So like he, he had his place within the gang, but you never really saw him without any of them. So I wonder if that's kind of why. Um, and the other thing I was gonna say is we get one more callback to a character from Henry IV, which is Doll Tearsheet, um, just for a moment there. And we're just yes. gonna keep insulting her. <laughs> we love her. She is our favorite prostitute in Shakespeare. Yes. Yes. She's great. She's so cool. <laughs> she also gets the best insults. Um, we were noting that in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, in the tavern scene, she keeps calling Pistol moldy. Um, like I'll stab my knife in your moldy chaps, which is just like an incredible thing to say. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, so tell us, uh, tell us, Zoe and Jesse, about uh, Bardolph and, and and Pistol. These are some tough things to say. <laughs> um, I feel like, and I feel this way in in Henry IV also. Like once you get into these prose tavern scenes. I mean, I'm always so impressed when I see a fully staged version because I think these characters require so much of the actors as far as like knowing what you're saying and your intention, but also playing the comedy and that it's, you know, also not that important to get into the nitty gritty. It's more about like the pace and the comedic timing and stuff like that. And I think it's hard to make stuff funny when you don't really know what it means and when the language feels really antiquated. Um, so I think it's a huge challenge. I also think this is sort of like a decoy scene in that it's like, let's get some laughs in before we tell you Falstaff's dead. Um, so it's sort of to, spoiler alert. <laughs> so it's sort of to like do a little song and dance before it's like, well, the real shit is about to go down yeah. uh, in the rest of this play. So yeah, I feel like it's sort of like a fun little distraction um, but yeah. Wonderful. And I, I love how it's like that, that previous chorus also ended with this, it, there was this rhyming couplet and then there's like two more lines like, oh yeah, there's a scene before just FYI. So we won't immediately go to Southampton as I previously said, but wait until the King shows up and then we're in Southampton and it doesn't even rhyme. And it just seems to me to like be this hastily, oh, right. Oh shit. We changed the word of the scenes. We need a little thing here. But it is it is fun that we that we start off in London with with these rogues. <laughs> I think there's also an element, right? I mean, to go into what you're saying, the false stuff not having a, a place in in this play, um, 
right? If 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 Falstaff was kind of a a, a parallel or mirror to to Henry the Fourth, and now that Henry the Fourth is absent, uh, Falstaff also is. So we get a little bit of this, you know, opening the play with this question of whether uh, Henry the Fifth can live up to uh, can actually fulfill the sort of his father's project, and so we also get. The, the tavern crew here with new um, military titles uh, and, and, and it very much a question of whether they can, they can live up to, to those in the absence of their, of, you know, their glorious leader. Yes. The glorious leader. <laughs> Absolutely. And Amy, I, I wanted yeah, to, to bring you I, in. Oh, sorry. I, sorry. I was wondering about the military titles because I had noticed that, you know, um, Nim is a corporal and Bardolph and Pistol also have like ranks attached to them. I forget exactly right now what it is, but it made me think of them more as sort of degenerate rather than ne'er do well. Like it's not mm. that they've never been anything. It's just that life has like made them less and less interested in what they're actually supposed to do, you know, or something. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, I, I think that's an interesting way to look at them. Like, like they were perhaps um more um respectable at one point in their prime maybe you know i don't know but that, that they have this wonderful degenerate thing about them because they're you know it's corporal nim you know? <laughs> and uh I, I think the voices are sounding really nicely together i i, I love nim and pistol and bardo like the way their voices sound i yes i love that and i think the only thing i know is that a lieutenant is uh above an ancient because and the only reason i know that is because of othello <laughs> because cassio gets made lieutenant and iago is made the ensign and he's very upset about that <laughs> and that's the only reason i have no idea where a corporal fits on that um, i think but, yeah. also i feel like it's also makes by the same token it's saying like how did they get these yeah. Because of Henry IV, you have false stuff going around like stabbing people who are dead yeah. already and being like, now I'm a knight because I did that. Um, so I feel like by the same token, it's like, well, I think they're, they were all, always pretty, you know, low. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these titles go back to Henry IV part one, because I feel like I remember the scene where you had Marty and the like, uh, wagon yes <laughs> we decided that Falstaff would not want to walk um so he hired a wagon and poor Bardolph had to pull him around on it um and then he also got a whole chicken that he got to eat during his that was soliloquy, so impressive every night but I do I feel like I vaguely remember Peto being a lieutenant related to Shrewsbury yes absolutely so these titles go back to that yeah I wouldn't think you'd have to start all over with titles every war if there was or battle there was or whatever. So yeah, no, that's a I wonderful guess. point. I mean, I know that so Falstaff was a captain, at least that's what Bardolph called him, mm -hmm. um, which is so laughable on so many that Falstaff was a captain. Um, but yeah, and then he says, bid my lieutenant Pedo. Um, but what happened to Pedo? Like what where did he go? Uh, you know, and then um what who was um what was Bardolph's rank and did he, did he gain a rank? Because yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I, I, I think that's Corporal's the, like the lowest of the low, right? Oh, Corporal's the lowest of the low. Oh, poor, poor I, Nim. I think, I think. Poor Nim. <laughs> um, yeah. Amy, I wanted to, to bring you in to talk about one of my favorite characters, Mistress Quickly. 
who's now Mistress Pistol? <laughs> Question mark. Um, <laughs> um, but her and her just marvelous um, malapropisms, uh, and and she's just wonderful. I just the the, her. the willful adultery and murder committed. That that was good. It's like really. Um, and then what was the other? Um, she had another good one where she just <clears throat> she just confuses the words it's just it's you know they sound good when they come out of your mouth but if you sit there and think about it it's like uh, oh yes um corporal nim show thy valor and put up your sword it's like really okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that <laughs> so it's kind of it's one of those things that you can just say the words and they come out but then if you you know, if somebody sits and reads it, yeah. looks at it, it's like, wait, hold yeah. it, what was that? It's very um, similar to something that she says in part two when Pistol is super drunk and is like getting really worked up and she's trying to calm him down. And she says, aggravate your collar, aggravate your collar, which is like, <laughs> just like exactly the opposite, obviously, opposite. of what she's trying to say, you know, it's just wonderful, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Amy. <laughs> um, I I had a, a not so much a, a comment about the hostess, but two things. Um, I'm I have an uh, the Bevington edited edition, uh -huh. and he edited Pistol in verse, and uh -huh. I think that is so interesting um, that Pistol kind of stands up and out um, of this. Uh, and then also Nim. Nim talks about humors all the time. He kind of <laughs> falls back on humors. It's like, oh yeah, it's the humor of it. Yeah, yeah. sure. That's that's the humor. That's what's happening. You know. And is he just throwing out that term, or does he really understand that whole philosophy of humors <laughs> and how you know the spleen affects this and you know melancholy? You don't eat that and. It's like, so, it's, I mean, it, these people are saying some very interesting things, oh, yeah. you know, they're low level, but they're really, you know, there's some good stuff going on here. Oh, yeah. That's interesting, Amy, because I feel like it could go both ways. Like he could be actually like a, a genius underneath it all, or it could be something <laughs> that he like heard five minutes ago over a beer and he's like, that's the key to life. <laughs> yeah, I heard somebody say humor yesterday and so I'm going to use it in every sentence. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and there's this as it may, they may, like you sort of seem to, to speak in a, in a different verb tense than everyone else. You're like, well, I don't know. It could happen. It might happen. You know, it's like it's kind of this strange, like, I'm going to insinuate at you until something happens. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind yeah. of like, I don't know. It's like he could be uh, in the big Lebowski or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually a wonderful way to see these characters. It's like the bowling team. That's like, yeah, that's like, <laughs> yeah I mean, <laughs> the archetypes are that deep, you know? um and and i i feel that you know someone saying hey ma'am care hey man careful there's a beverage here like would not be out of place in this crew. <laughs> like, one of my favorite lines in movie history oh, <laughs> there's man. a beverage here like that's <laughs> so amazing. good um and then the boy as well who we saw at the beginning we were introduced to this boy who hal 
or Henry V gave to Falstaff, which is like a little bit weird on many levels, but there's, there's like this, it, it has to be a very tiny person playing this because it's like the huge Falstaff is followed by this like tiny little boy who's incredibly witty, um, who's always got these great, you know, like he, he seems to have it out for Bardolph. He's always making fun of Bardolph. Um, and, and like Bardolph's always calling him like a tiny little ape and all of this stuff. It's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of recurring, recurring jokes. Um, but I, I also just, just to transition to the next scene, I, I, I love this. They start talking about the King and it's, it's, what was anyone's impression about how they feel about the King? Cause obviously they were all rejected and they were told they cannot come within 10 miles of the king until they sort of reform themselves. Um, but he was still giving them money, which is interesting, right? He was still supporting them and giving them money, um, giving them rent money, as it were. Um, so what, what was your impression of, of how they actually feel about the king? Uh, it seem, I mean, it seems like their allegiance is to Falstaff, not to the king, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. That they're like sticking with the team, so to speak. At least yeah. that's how I take like the king hath run bad humors on the night. I'm assuming yeah. he's all staff. Yes. And then he changes. He he changes the line from the that's the humor of it to that's the even of it, which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And humors here meaning like the fluids inside the body right that's sort of the elizabethans felt determined both like what was wrong with you and also how your personality manifested itself um and even here sort of meaning like the plain truth right there's the plain yeah truth yeah about yeah it. like there's um, a he kind of drops all the funny talk and says something true which yeah i think speaks to the earlier point of like this is setting up some sadder themes yeah Absolutely. Well, and I, I just love uh, Mistress Quickly's um, The King Hath Killed His Heart. I think it's such a simple yeah. and um, accurate uh, description of kind of what's happened to Falstaff. And Falstaff was all heart, you know, so it's like there is no more Falstaff when you've killed his heart. It does feel like all this talk about humors that we've mentioned so much, like already the play feels so different from the Henry Fours and like you feel the lack of Falstaff even even in the comedy that's happening, you know, like it yeah. feels like setting up, you said, you know, it, it, there's no room for Falstaff in this play, but it really does feel like something is, is missing. And it feels like the intention for me, just in the comedy, it, you know, the, the, the pleasure is gone. Like Falstaff is yeah. like, you want to talk about like the, the humors and like personalities and stuff. Like the blood is gone. The sang- the sanguine, like yes. part of the play is gone. And so what it sort of becomes is this like, weird shell where they're all just kind of squabbling with each other like it feels just you know since it's just past Christmas it feels like that scene um in Christmas Carol where uh they're all like kind of squabbling over like his bed sheets and stuff like oh yeah it's funny but it's also just like it feels devoid of of humanity and it's so interesting like this is the sort of like levity of the play but also like and I don't know what you guys just talked about in act one and how we feel about like the war with France, but it, 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 like the play is sort of a weird squabble out of nothing, not out of nothing, but like over, over this space that it, it, it's so, it feels so unnecessary. And so then to have that kind of reflected 
even in the clowns is so it's yeah. it's just like reminding you that something is missing and that it feels like all the all the the joy and it turns out that all the fighting is over like a very small amount of money um as well as you know the all of the fighting in france has to do with an interpretation of a very very old salic law which as we learned means germany not france (laughs) thank you esther for working your way through that ridiculously difficult speech um, last time um I would love to, to now turn to uh, two um, because this sort of represents interestingly one of the only sort of civil disputes that happened during Henry V's time and it was very short-lived and squashed very easily. Um, and for those of you who are listening to Henry IV part one and Henry IV part one and two, Bedford is the former Prince John of Lancaster. So that's the same, it's the same person. It's the one of the younger brothers of the king. So, yeah, whenever you're ready. For God, his grace is bold to trust these traitors. They shall be apprehended by and by. How smooth and even they do bear themselves as if allegiance in their bosoms sat crowned with faith and constant loyalty. The king hath note of all that they intend by interception, which they dream not of. Nay, but the man that was his bedfellow that was his bedfellow, whom he hath doled and cloyed with gracious favors, that he should for a foreign purse so sell his sovereign's life to death and treachery. Now sits the wind fair, and we will aboard. My lord of Cambridge, and my kind lord of Masham, and you, my gentle knight, give me your thoughts. Think you not that the powers we bear with us will cut their passage through the force of France, doing the execution and the act for which we have in head assembled them. No doubt, my liege, if each man do his best. I doubt not that. Since we are well persuaded, we carry not a heart with us from hence that grows not in a fair consent with ours, nor leave not one behind that doth not wish success and conquest to attend on us. Never was monarch better feared and loved than is your majesty. There's not, I think, a subject that sits in heart grief and uneasiness under the sweet shade of your government. True. Those that were your father's enemies have steeped their galls in honey and do serve you with hearts create of duty and of zeal. We therefore have great cause of thankfulness and shall forget the office of our hand sooner than quittance of desert and merit according to the weight and worthiness. So service shall with steel and sinews toil, and labor shall refresh itself with hope to do your grace incessant services. We judge no less. Uncle of Exeter, enlarge the man committed yesterday that railed against our person. We consider it was excess of wine that set him on, and on his more advice we pardon him. That's mercy, but too much security. Let him be punished, sovereign, lest example breed by his sufferance more of such a kind. Oh, let us be merciful. So may your highness and yet punish too. Sir, you show great mercy if you give him life after the taste of much correction. Alas, your too much love and care of me are heavy orisons against this poor wretch. If little faults proceeding on distemper shall not be winked at, How shall we stretch our eye when capital crimes, chewed, swallowed, and digested, appear before us? We'll yet enlarge that man, 
though Cambridge, Scrope, and Gray, in their dear care and tender preservation of our person, would have him punished. And now to our French causes. Who are the late commissioners? I won, my lord. Your highness bade me ask for it today. So did you me, my liege. And I, my royal sovereign. Then, Richard, Earl of Cambridge, there is yours. There yours, Lord Scroop of Masham, and Sir Knight, Grey of Northumberland, the same as yours. Read them, and know I know your worthiness. My Lord of Westmoreland and Uncle Exeter, we will aboard tonight. Why, how now, gentlemen? What see you in those papers that you lose so much complexion? Look ye, how they change. Their cheeks are paper. Why, what read you there? that have so cowarded and chased your blood out of appearance? I do confess my fault and do submit me to your highness's mercy. To which, to which we all appeal. The mercy that was quick in us but late by your own counsel is suppressed and killed. You must not dare for shame to talk of mercy. For your own reasons turn into your bosoms as dogs upon their masters worrying you. See you, my princes and my noble peers, these English monsters, my lord of Cambridge here. You know how apt our love was to accord to furnish him with all appurtenance belonging to his honor. And this man hath for a few light crowns lightly conspired and sworn unto the practices of France to kill us here in Hampton, to the which this night, no less for bounty bound to us than Cambridge's, hath likewise sworn. But, oh, how, what shall I say to thee, Lord Scroop, thou cruel, ingrateful, savage, and inhuman creature, thou that didst bear the key of all my counsels, that noosed the very bottom of my soul, that almost mightst have coined me into gold, wouldst thou have practiced on me for thy use? May it be possible that foreign hired could out of thee extract one spark of evil that might annoy my finger? Tis so strange that though the truth of it stands off as gross as black and white, my eye will scarcely see it. Treason and murder ever kept together as two yoke devils sworn to either's purpose, working so grossly in unnatural cause that admiration did not whoop at them. But thou, against all proportion, didst bring in wonder to wait on treason and on murder. And whatsoever cunning fiend it was that wrought upon thee so preposterously hath got the voice in hell for excellence and other devils that suggest by treasons do botch and bungle up damnation with patches, colors, and with forms being fetched from glistering semblances of piety. But he that tempered thee bade thee stand up, gave thee no instance why thou shouldst do treason unless to dub thee with the name of traitor. If that same demon that hath gulled thee thus should with his lion gate walk the whole world, he might return to vasty Tartar back and tell the legions I can never win a soul so easy as that Englishman's. Oh, 
How hast thou with jealousy infected the sweetness of affiance? Show men dutiful? Why so didst thou? Seem they grave and learned? Why so didst thou? Come they of noble family? Why so didst thou? Seem they religious? Why so didst thou? Or are they spare in diet, free from gross passion or of mirth or anger, constant in spirit, not swerving with the blood, garnished and decked in modest compliment, not working with the eye without the ear, and but in purged judgment, trusting neither, such and so finely bolted didst thou seem, and thus thy fall hath left a kind of blot to make the full-fraught man and best endued with some suspicion. I will weep for thee. For this of revolt of thine, methinks, is like another fall of man. Their faults are open. Arrest them to the answer of the law. And God acquit them of their practices. I arrest thee of high treason by the name Richard Earl of Cambridge. I arrest thee of high treason by the name of Henry Lord Scrope of Masham. I arrest thee of high treason by the name of Thomas Gray, Knight of Northumberland. Her purposes God justly hath discovered, and I repent my fault more than my death, which I beseech your highness to forgive, although my body pay the price of it. For me the gold of France did not seduce, although I admit it as a motive, the sooner to effect what I intended, but God be thanked for prevention, which I in sufferance heartily will rejoice, beseeching God and you to pardon me. Never did, su never did faithful subject more rejoice at the discovery of most dangerous treason than I do at this hour, joy or myself prevented from a damned enterprise. My fault, but not my body, pardon, sovereign. God quit you in his mercy. Hear your sentence. You have conspired against our royal person, joined with an enemy, proclaimed, and from his coffers received the golden earnest of our death, wherein you would have sold your king to slaughter, his princes and his peers to servitude, his subjects to oppression and contempt, and his whole kingdom into desolation. Touching our person, we seek no revenge but we are kingdoms safely must so tender, whose ruin you sought, that to her laws we do deliver you. Get you therefore hence, poor miserable wretches, to your death, the taste whereof God of his mercy give you patience to endure, and true repentance of all your dear offenses. Bear them hence. Now, lords, for France, the enterprise whereof shall be to you as us like glorious. We doubt not of a fair and lucky war, since God so graciously hath brought to light this dangerous treason lurking in our way to hinder our beginnings. We doubt not now, but every rub is smoothed on our way. And forth, dear countrymen, let us deliver our puissance into the hand of God, putting it straight in expedition. Cheerly to see, the signs of war advance. No king of England, if not king of France. Rhyming couplet. Wonderful. Um, whoa, a lot going on in this scene. 
Um, I, I, I love the people convicted for treason being glad they were caught somehow. I, I, I don't quite buy that considering how violent and horrific the execution for treason was, <laughs> but maybe that's you, just me. <laughs> you introduced the scene by saying this is one of the, the few scenes, well, the few instances of civil uh, unrest. And it's, uh, I think, the maybe the only scene other than the squabbling amongst the lower classes, but it, it's a scene where that, uh, where the treachery is uh, subverted by their words at least and whether you play it straight as those characters or 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 try to play it some other way i, I don't really know but um how interesting that even this scene of unrest and dispute is subverted in that way by their uh in the end they are glad to have been discovered they're almost just a plot device in that sense yeah it's as as uh, it it was talking about in the the Shakespeare's English Kings uh, chapter on Henry V, this is one of the few times that there was civil unrest during Henry V's reign. It was actually in terms of the civil wars that had kind of plagued the kingdom uh, prior to Henry V's reign. This was one of the most peaceful when it came to within its own borders, and there were two tiny, tiny, tiny uprisings. I'm actually interestingly. This uprising was told to Henry by, let's go, going back to Henry IV, part one, Mortimer, who was, again, the person who was supposed to, um, that they were trying to put on the throne. And Mortimer had actually, Henry V had done a lot to try and give him honors and bring him back in and, and make him a, a friend. And they became very good friends. And then there was this another plot to 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 put Mortimer on the throne and he was the one who actually told Henry about it which is kind of interesting um so you know that's it's it gets into this you know this family drama right aspect of all of this and who's gonna who are you gonna trust and who are you gonna what what does it cost for each of these people to sort of have made this decision um and they must have felt very very strongly about it um yeah, what I would I would just love to get your your impressions. There's such an interesting dramatic turn. I, I wonder what's in these papers. Is it like a the warrant for their execution? Is it their own hands? Um, you know, conspired against him that he's somehow intercepted. I'm just I'm very curious as to to what it is they're reading and why Henry chooses to sort of reveal the treason in this way. Um, if anyone has any thoughts about that. I mean, I it is kind of... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I like to picture that these pieces of paper are big old parchments and it's all blank except right in the middle. It just has, I know, like <laughs> written in, in blood or something. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. I it's a different uh, look on Henry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Zoe, you were I, saying? Oh. Yeah, I just, I find it kind of amusing because, you know, all throughout, I mean, from the very, from the prologue leading into this act, like, yeah, these guys are guilty. We know about it. Everyone but these three is like in on it. They're aware <laughs> that, you know what I mean? And so these guys are like, oh no, no, punish him more. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. be directly turned against them. I think that's, there's a lot of, it's not funny because again, as you said, it would be a horrible death, but it's really funny how these just absolute 
walnuts are sitting here like oh we're gonna get away with it and everyone's like no you're not (laughs) like if it uh, using like my modern sensibilities this reads 100% camp to me if it weren't like for all of these long speeches by King Henry in between the elements like like you said we know from the very start that's like these three people they're the only ones who aren't in the know for the entire scene like, the audience knows everybody else knows and they're just sitting there just speaking all what uh, on those papers I like to imagine it's just like um, screenshot the text messages that say, let's go kill the king. <laughs> somehow left out on the couch somewhere. Um, but Henry V has the receipts. <laughs> yeah. uh, to me, it felt very like parable, if anything, just mm. like, uh, and then we're going to plug this scene for the children to let them know not to commit treason. <laughs> and uh, I know you, you had some insight. Oh, well, we were talking too about how like, of all, although this relates to them going to France and all that, it's not necessary to have this scene, except that it feels like another way to justify, like, we know that his dad was a usurper and Elizabeth hates that, but here, look, there were usurpers against him, so also bad. So, you know, it's like, we're trying to be like, see? <laughs> it's very much like trying to get on our side of being like, yeah, I also hate usurpers, don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> So something else that really interests me, because as I talked about in the act one reading, um, my husband was Hal in Henry IV part one when Ari directed it. He's Hal in Henry IV part two now. And looking at this, I'm very interested in the arc of that character, kind of hearing his thought processes. He's built that um, over the past, what, almost year, two years? What is this year? I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) but, and I don't know this one overly well, but I feel like um, even as this scene is kind of silly, we still are starting to get more examples of him growing into his own as a king. And this is possibly, I'm guessing, because again, I don't know it super well, but I'm wondering if this is a little bit of foreshadowing for when he decides to execute Bartle. I don't know. Um, mm. But mm. so even though this is just kind of like, this is ridiculous and these guys are absolute morons um, and that message is definitely in this scene, I think that maybe kind of this practicing of um, executing justice is part of yeah. that growth. And so that's something that I'm looking at and seeing if my theory is correct. Absolutely. I, I definitely feel there is an echo in this this very long speech, um, uh, which is interesting. A- Andrew, I'd love for you to, to, to talk about this very long speech that you have here. Um, much of it is very much devoted to only one of these three conspirators. This is very much devoted to Lord Scrope, Lord Scrope, however we pronounce that. Um, But it does seem to me to echo the super badass speech that we all really loved at the end of act one in a certain sense of this, shall this mock, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles down. But it's, it's a different one in that it's, it seems very personal. Um, Like this betrayal to him, this was his, the person who literally slept in his bed, like when they were kids, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's kind of, that's a very personal betrayal. And I was just wondering if what your, what your thoughts were in terms of Henry so far, um, as we've seen him in the in the play, it's interesting because as naturalistic as um, as we know Shakespeare is or can be, for me, I, I, in this play, I 
have a hard time. Well, the naturalism is there, but to, when I read this play, I hear the um, the morality, the mythic quality, the uh, mythologizing of the of the history here, the patriotism, all these things. Um, ring louder to me in a lot of these scenes and especially the henry scenes and it's such a huge shift from how and how um naturalistic he seems at least to me um that i so anyway i the this henry this king seems archetypal in a way that how isn't where how is so human um and uh has foibles and flaws as well as strengths gosh this guy just seems and i know we're, we're coming to bardolf and and this sense that henry can still relate to the uh to the people but he also has this vengeful god kind of quality uh to him in these in these massive speeches um I was thinking in this speech, as just as I was reading it, about uh, Falstaff and how um, there was a line, where was this? Oh, or, or are they spare in diet, free from gross passion? <laughs> this is towards the end. Uh, and um, all I could think about was Falstaff and how, uh, and, and almost comparing Scrope to Falstaff and thinking uh, even this person who was so noble uh, in all the senses of that word also was a traitor mm. and um, and yet that guy who was so in so many ways innoble is now dying in a in is literally at this moment dying in a in a, a penniless fashion d down in the um, down in the muck yeah. Well, and there's there's a wonderful kind of strange echo for me in this scene of uh, the first time in the first scene that we ever see Hal and Falstaff in part one, uh, when Hal says like, no, you know what, I'm not going to go on this robbery. You know, Falstaff says, by the Lord, I'll be a traitor then when thou art king. Mm. And Hal's response is, I care not, which mm. like, I think he cares. I'm, I'm just putting it out there, but I, I get a feeling that he does care if people are traitors during his, but maybe he just doesn't care that Falstaff will be a traitor. Maybe he would see that as a very incompetent rebellion, but um, this is, it definitely seems that he, he does, he does in fact care. And, um, and one of my, one of my favorite little details from the, the Kenneth Brenna version was um, when <laughs> Exeter is, arresting each one of them he like pulls you know the thing off of their cloak and then he gets to <laughs> lord scrope of masham and he just slaps him in the face after he <laughs> such a great it was just like such a like silly thing and it was that's wonderful larger than life actor brian bedford i think his name is who's just like who was like the giant king and the original series of Black Adder, just like very much larger than life, kind of like an opera singer with his voice and everything. It just smacked him right in the face, which I just thought was a wonderful detail. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, I yeah. There's, there's, uh, 
it's great that in this scene there's an, another opportunity to see um, kind of the the sacrifices that uh, that Henry V has to do as a king, as a new king, and and how he has to kind of pave his 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 road, uh, starting with this tennis ball thing in the first act. You know how he has to react on the spot, and here how he has to. He says, he says something like, if it were just me, I wouldn't need to kill you, but I am, I am now the king. This is for England and, uh, and now we do. So he has to play this double role and slowly dissolve more into this king figure and leave his, you know, <laughs> kind of mortal freedom from before, you know? And so that's just kind of a, a and and also just show how capable he is. He he has to you know kind of really set the boundaries, and I find that an important scene to to see that side of him before he before everything's in the battle, and and he like all the carnal uh, concerns are much more at the forefront later. Absolutely, yeah, it, it's interesting to me to think that to remember that this is written around the same time as Hamlet because it actually reminds me of the transition that Hamlet goes through in the play. You think about um, when he orders Rosencrantz and Guildenstern dead. I think it's Horatio that says, what a king is this? Um, but like all of a sudden he's thinking about, he's, he's kind of let going, let, letting go of his boyish attachments and starting to think like, what's the best for the country? Like I had, you know, I had to get rid of them for my family, mm -hmm. for the crown, you know, but, and because as I understand it in Henry the four, and I mean, he's Hal, right? He's not Henry, he's Hal, he's such a boy. And I think the way that they give him these two banging speeches, like right <laughs> off the bat, is like to just show what a transition he's undergone. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I I think uh, I think also earlier what Andrew was saying about mythologizing or, or myth making, right? Is absolutely something going on here. I mean, sort of the larger project of the of the Henry ad, right? Is to sort of create this heroic figure. Um, but we also see uh, Henry V, Hal, uh, even even as Hal, right, has a very sort of PR minded, right? He's very very concerned with optics, right? Like even 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 as a young party boy, he's he's uh, He's, he has that speech about, I'm like the sun behind a cloud that appears so much more bright once I'm revealed, right? We have this, it's sort of this, you know, the, uh, he was actually this long-term PR move to like, uh, <laughs> and again, with the tennis speech here, right? He, he has, it's, you know, he doesn't like get the tennis balls in private tantrum and be like, I'm declaring war on France, right? He's already decided to declare war on France, and then the tennis balls are appear in front of the whole court, and right, and here he has staged this this big reveal of of um, of their guilt in front of the whole court and set them up to have already condemned them. Right? Um, that we see Henry is also this extremely, uh, you know, sort of understanding how to sort of play the the the, the, the minds of the common the common folk, which is a sort of feels like a, not the common folk, but the, the, his subject, um, which feels like a very, 
uh, a little bit of an imposition or, or sort of a reading backwards of, of sort of Elizabethan style politics onto mm. an earlier era, right? So, um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's a wonderful point that I think, I think all of these history plays, because they're about England, you know, they could never be about Elizabeth or about, it, it was far too dangerous to make, to make uh, parallels, which is why I feel like Shakespeare got ballsier and ballsier as he, as he went through his career, because like the Macbeth play coming out right after a Scottish King is put on the, like, and holding a mirror that shows him many more, including uh, probably that would be going, the reflection of the mirror in the, the prophecy scene would be showing the King his own reflection on stage, which is like this amazing meta theatrical thing, but that's a very ballsy thing to to make that comment about the sort of history of the, of the Scottish monarchy. Um, and similarly here, uh, as we're gonna see in the prologue to act five, there is this remarkable topical reference to the Earl of Essex and making him the Henry V of the Elizabethan era, which was obviously not a good thing to have in this play because a couple of years later, he's gonna lead a rebellion, a very unsuccessful rebellion against Elizabeth. But it just to show like how, how politically um, potent the, the court was in all of these, all of these people. And, um, you know, alliances were everything and they shifted very, very quickly as we saw with King John, for those of you who were <laughs> with us for that project. It was like, it was like watching a history and fast forward. I mean, it's just extraordinary how fast alliances uh, come and go in that play. Um, but I also feel like it's unlike any of the other kings we've seen up to this point in these plays yeah. because with I mean before this you have Richard II and Henry IV uh just like chronologically I don't know about when they were written exactly but how they both to me this scene draws such a high contrast between those two because they're both acting so much out of self-interest mm -hmm. and anytime they execute people for treason it's because of their own sort of paranoia or you know, you have Richard banishing Bolingbroke and then taking all his ancestral home. And you have, you know, Henry IV basically being so nervous that these people are gonna rebel against him that he's like, you know, executing people left and right. And then you have Henry V who says like, who sort of gives these people a chance almost. I mean, he's already decided to execute them, but he, he's sort of testing them to see if they'd be willing to, you know, have mercy if the shoe was on the other foot. Um, and then you have them like thanking him at the end. <laughs> so it's like a completely different response than we've seen previously with these other kings. So I feel like it is to show this sort of like honorable, legendary, you know, selfless hero uh, yeah. we have yet to see. And I think to go back to something that Andrew brought up in act one is we've never seen the English court in any of the previous history plays so united in one, uh, in a sort of singular agreement about like passing to the, the clergy. We had the, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of Ely both like very much pushing an invasion of France. Um, for their own reasons that had to do with not wanting their money to be taken um, by a parliamentary action. So there's there's obviously political motivations, but there definitely seems to be um, 
he seems to have taken to heart just to connect it to Henry the fourth part two, his father's dying words and advice, which was essentially you need to unite this kingdom. And the best possible way to do that is to create enemies on the outside and foreign quarrels, right? You need to, you need to create, you need to unite your people by having another enemy on the outside. I mean, this is imperialism 101, right? It's like, this is just the way to unite a country and stimulate an economy in the sort of, um, uh, that never happens these days. Oh, never, never. Um, I'm speaking of course in the past. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's definitely, I think quite remarkable how much he seems to have taken the advice to heart and it has worked as we, as we know, and actually as is, uh, talked about in the, the Shakespeare's English King and he actively worked to give titles and money and honors to the people who were rebelling against his father in order to kind of buy their loyalty. And it seems to have worked quite well um, instead of uh, more. And, and of course the subjects are happier because they're not being pressed into service against for a war that they, they have no stake in. Although interestingly, we're gonna get a very interesting dialogue about what is the importance of this war to the English subjects. Um, when we get to act four and that's going to be a, a very important theme um yeah andrew i just wanted to say um it's striking me more and more that the that not only is henry the character uh, following henry fourth's advice to unite the kingdom but the play also does that too uh, dramatically um it's really evident in this scene where the traitors fall into line as soon as as soon as their um, treachery is is revealed publicly, um, you know you could do this scene dramatically in a in a more contentious way, but the the action of it flows towards an inevitable conclusion from the very beginning, and the audience mm. can see what that conclusion is. And the same thing uh, goes for the question of will we invade France in the uh, in Act One here. Um, the question is there. But all that has to be done to decide yes is for us to listen to the archbishop for a very, 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 very long time. And then we're like, yes, okay, let's go invade France. Um, so it's it's not just the character, but it's dramatic. The play itself is saying um, we have to unite the kingdom and get to France. I, mm. And I find that very interesting, uh, again, comparing it to the earlier plays, Um with all that strife that is dramatically written so that you actually have some doubt uh, as to what the internal situation will be. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and let us uh, transition to our, 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 our second, our return to London with um, the hostess and Nim and Bardolph and Pistol and the, the wonderful uh, page boy so that we hear one of my favorite speeches, which I think Judy Dench killed in the Kenneth Branagh version um, about Falstaff's death um, and all of them sort of uh, reflecting on the effect of, of Falstaff's death whenever you are ready. Prithee, honey, sweet husband, let me bring thee to stains. No, for my manly heart doth urge. Bardolph be blithe. Nim, rouse thy vaunting veins. Boy, bristle thy courage up. For Falstaff, he is dead, and we must earn, therefore. Would I were with him. 
where Samaria is, either in heaven or in hell. Nay, sure he's not in hell. He's in Arthur's bosom, if ever man went to Arthur's bosom. He made a finer end and went away and it had been any Christum child. Departed, even just between 12 and one and at the turning of the tide. For after I saw him fumble with the sheets and play with flowers and smile upon his fingers and I knew there was but one way. For his nose was as sharp as a pen and babbled of green fields. How now, Sir John, quoth I, what man, be a good cheer. Sir cried out, God, 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 three or four times. Now I, to comfort him, bid him I should not think of God. I hope there was no need to trouble himself with any such thoughts yet. So bade me lay more clothes on his feet, put my hand into the bed and felt them, and they were as cold as any stone. Then I felt to his knees, and so appeared an upward, and all was as cold as any stone. They say he cried out of sack. Aye, <laughs> that it did. End of women. <laughs> Nay, that it did not. Yes, that I did, and said there were devils incarnate. I could never imbibe carnation. T'was a color he never liked. I said once the devil would have him about women. I did in some sort indeed handle women. But then he was rheumatic and talked of the horror of Babylon. Do you not remember I saw flea stick up on Bardolph's nose and I said it was a black soul burning in hell? Well, the fuel is gone that maintained that fire. That's all the riches I got in his service. Shall we shog? The king will be gone from Southampton. Come, let's away. My love, give me thy lips. Look to my chattels and my movables. Let senses rule. The world is pitch and pay. Trust none, for oaths are straws, men's, faith are men's faiths are wafer cakes, and hold fast is the only dog. My duck, therefore, Cavito, be thy counselor. Go, clear thy crystals. Yoke fellows in serms, let us to France like horse leeches, my boys, to suck, to suck, the very blood to suck. And they say that's but unwholesome food, they say. Touch her soft mouth and march. Farewell, hostess. I cannot kiss. That is the humor of it. But adieu. Let housewifery appear. Keep close, I thee command. Farewell, adieu. Lovely. Um, Zoe, I'm so sorry. There's a, a typo there, and it should be Yoke Fellow in arms. I'm so right. sorry about that. <laughs> I was like, uh, I know this isn't a word. But... <laughs> Smear. <laughs> Wonderful. I love the devil's incarnate, and you take that to be carnation, a, a color he couldn't yeah. he couldn't stand. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> um, what a wonderful speech, Amy. Beautifully read. Um, 
it's such a sweet and there's there's a whole bunch of malapropisms at the top of that speech too arthur's bosom was a a malaprop for um abraham's bosom right he's gone and then christum sort of being a malaprop for christened um so yeah it's just it's a wonderful speech and there's a lot of humor in it too which i think is so very shakespearean right to 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 bring in humor when there's a moment of of sadness and death and the the, it's a very strange construction with the ah um ah meaning he and i said and he said and he said um in in i think in some versions it's ah and in some versions it's he um and the cried out of sack here meaning of means against so he's crying out against sack, which is like a very <laughs> daft thing to do, right? And and crying out against women, which he kind of did a, a bit, but yeah. Any any thoughts on this this sweet little ode to Falstaff? <laughs> it just it still doesn't feel like it does him justice. Yeah, you know, he's this huge, larger than life character, and I know, I mean. This makes more sense. Uh, Merry Wives is actually the first Shakespeare play I ever did. Um, and it does make sense after this that, you know, Queen Elizabeth is like, that's it? No, we need more, <laughs> you know? Um, but it also, I was thinking about this um, with 2-1. There was that Netflix movie, um, The King or something like that, where yeah. I think that Falstaff lived, right? And it just, I didn't watch it because I didn't hear good things about it as a Shakespeare <laughs> oh. geek. Um, so maybe someone else can speak to that, but. I thought it just, uh, the King, I, I loved the movie um, because I thought it gave a different perspective. And he took, Hal took Falstaff with him to Agincourt. And it was oh. in the movie, Falstaff was the one that said, hey, it's going to rain. They're going to slip and fall. Hang on. I think it's going to rain and it does and it pays off. And they, they really emphasize the French just looking like idiots um, at Agincourt. But, (laughs) but yeah, it was, it was, you sat there and looked at it and it's like, God, how can I relate this to the Shakespeare history plays? And it's like, it's, it was very, very hard, you know, to go back and forth. But I thought, their use of Falstaff was really interesting that Falstaff was good uh, at war, uh, a strategist uh, for mm. Hal, which I kind of like. I, um, I, I, I like the idea that, that Hal sort of carries on a bit of, of Falstaff with him. Uh, mm-hmm. he, t- he brings Falstaff with him to France. But, but Hal, I, I, I think in this act, or the, yeah, in this act, I'm beginning to be afraid of Henry V because he has no problem turning his back on friends when they're no longer needed. Um, He has Mm. no problem cutting off somebody's head or disemboweling them or whatever. Um, Bardolph, hey, hang him. He stole Mm. during war, hang him. so I, I and and as Henry gets to war, he really is, um, you know, we'll hear him say the most abominable things, um, yeah. uh, and so I I you know I like I like Henry V, but I fear him, and I yeah. I think that you know if I was loyal to him I'd be fine, 
Um, but boy, you know, if you're not needed anymore, get out of the way. Yeah, there is. I think, Amy, that's that's wonderful that you sort of love and fear him much as his subjects do. Mm-hmm. Right. There is a really interesting I think because he made this transformation, there is something highly unpredictable about him which all the all the best sort of villains in a sense they're scary because they're unpredictable right and that's what it like a spider like you don't know when it's going to go fast and when it's going to slow down and there's something a little bit terrifying about that I think it's super interesting that like we're setting that sort of tone for transformation for for h5 um but that the scene I it feels so much to me like a reminder that like you have no control over how people remember you you know like they literally just came from the room where he died and already like I love quickly so much she's already like no he didn't say anything bad about women yeah. and then you know they're like well yeah actually he did he said they can go to hell you know? <laughs> um, so I think it's it's this beautiful like and I, I, maybe I'm just like my, my affection for these scenes is, is ringing true, but like the way that these scenes sort of like, not only are they like raising our spirits and, you know, making us laugh, but also they are reminding us of, of what's happening in the rest of the play. And like, you know, we, we all, we've seen Falstaff, we all know Falstaff, but we haven't seen him in this play and already all of these people who are his friends and are and are like so quick to be like, well, fuck Hal, he's abandoned Falstaff in his hour of need are already sort of like distancing themselves from the memory of what Falstaff was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they're all, you know, I think Shakespeare's very good at showing the effect of warfare on the working class. You know, this poor little boy is being sent off to war. Like he's probably like, 12 or 13 years old and he's being sent off to the field and it's implied although never sort of explicitly said that he is actually one of the boys that is massacred at Agincourt by the French um so it's played by a very young Christian Bale in Kenneth Branagh's uh production which is just like hilarious to think about but um really very disturbing the the effect of warfare on these people who who you know most of whom don't they don't have military training they just throw a weapon in their hands and sort of say okay off you go um it it does not seem like a fair (laughs) existence but yeah i want to i want to be sure that we get to our 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 french court which as we're going to see is a little bit more contentious and there seem to be factions in this French court. So let us uh, turn now to um, to Act Two, Scene Four, and we finally meet the French king, who, as it's it's not really implied in this play, but did suffer bouts of madness, periodic bouts of madness during his lifetime, where then uh, France went under the uh, the care of a whole bunch of different dukes and princes and factions that were really, really um, intense and very aggressive and would um, frequently have each other assassinated. Um, so this is a very, very intense cutthroat world of power, just as the, the English court was. Um, and just in terms of a, a, a title, the Constable of France was the name in both England and France for the chief officer of the royal household. So this is a very, very 
high up important position. So off we go to the French. Um, real quick, Ariana, did we establish any sort of sandbox playing rules about how we're handling French in this recording? Are oh. we are we doing any accents? Are we oh what, like how um, did you as the Dauphin <laughs> um, handle it, Colin? Well, so I'm I'm playing both the the Dauphin and um, Elise, and I found it a little odd that we have scenes that are written in French and then scenes that are yeah. written in English, even though it's yeah. all French people. Yeah. So my initial impression was to eliminate any kind of French affect, just okay. because if it was going to be there, why is it not in French? Yeah. It yeah. feels like it's being played to the audience straight. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. And- I tried, I tried verse in a French accent and it didn't go well. So. Yeah, I would say just use your, <laughs> go ahead and use your, and, and you know what's interesting about this play and accents is that there are characters whose accent is written into their dialogue, mm-hmm. like Fluellen, like Jamie, like McMorris, McMorris, and, oh um, like uh, actually like Catherine and Alice who do have French accents, but the French don't seem to have French accents. So okay. I would say, feel free to do it in your own voice. And I don't think we get any French in, we will get French in act three and we'll sort of right, go through right, the right. whole thing of how to deal with that. Yes. And it's da, Dauphin. Da, okay. Da, this is wonderful. So yeah. <laughs> it is in the folio. It is the dolphin, which is very anglicized. Yeah. And then here. It is the Dauphin, um, but I, as we we were kind of loosely playing, especially since Henry V gets to say Dauphin, Dolphin so many times in Act One. Andrew was having mm-hmm. fun sort of choosing which ones were which. Okay, cool. Um, but I, I think the French can say Dauphin if you would if you would like. That's sort of okay. the way it scans, I think, in the verse. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. I would just say that also it's a it throughout the history plays whenever they deal with the dauphin the english pointedly will say dolphin sometimes as we were just saying and that's also in henry the sixth when they deal with joan and the dauphin uh like right before joan is killed like taken on the battlefield they start poking joan by saying dolphin instead of dauphin or like mispronouncing. oh like an intentional type of thing interesting okay cool that's interesting. <laughs> and Bretain, the Dukes of Berry and Bretain? Yes, Bretain. Okay. Yes. Great. And um, great. that 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 is referring to Brittany, which is yeah, yeah, in yeah. northwest France. Cool. Lovely. Great. Have fun. Gracias. <clears throat> Thus comes the English with full power upon us, and more than carefully it us concerns to answer royally in our defenses. Therefore, the Dukes of Berry and of Bretain, of Brabant and Orlans shall make forth and you, Prince Dauphin, with all swift dispatch to line and new repair our towns of war with men of courage and with means defendant. For England, his approaches makes as fierce as waters to the sucking of a gulf. It fits us then to be as provident as fear may teach us out of late examples left by the fatal and neglected English upon our fields. My most redoubted father, it is most meet we arm us against the foe, for peace itself should not dull, should not so dull a kingdom, the war nor no known quarrel were in question, but that defenses, musters, preparations 
should be maintained, assembled, and collected as, as were a war in expectation. Therefore, I say, tis meet we all go forth to view the sick and feeble parts of France, and let us do it with no show of fear, no, with no more than if we heard that England were busied with a Whitson Morris dance, for, my good liege, she is so idly kinged, her scepter so fantastically borne by a vain, giddy, shallow, humorous youth, that fear attends her not. Oh, peace, Prince Dauphin, you are too much mistaken in this king. Question, your grace, the late ambassadors, with what great state he heard their embassies, how well supplied with noble counselors, how modest in exception, and withal how terrible in constant resolution. And you shall find his vanities forespent were but the outside of the Roman Brutus, covering discretion with a coat of folly. As gardeners do with order, hide those roots which shall first spring and be most delicate. Well, tis not so, my Lord High Constable, but though we think it so, it is no matter. In cases of defense, tis best to weigh the enemy more mighty than he seems. So the proportions of defense are filled which of a weak and sparingly projection doth like a miser spoil his coat with scanting a little cloth. Think we, King Harry, strong. And princes, look you strongly armed to meet him. The kindred of him hath been fleshed upon us, and he is bred out of that bloody strain that haunted us in our familiar paths. Witness our too much memorable shame when Cressy battle fatally was struck and all our princes captived by the hand of that black name Edward, Black Prince of Wales. Whilst that his mountain sire on mountain standing up in the air crowned him with the golden sun, saw his heroical seed and smiled to see him mangle the work of nature and deface the patterns that by God and by French fathers had 20 years been made. This is a stem of that victorious stock and let us fear the native mightiness and fate of him. Ambassadors from Harry, King of England, do crave admittance to your majesty. <sighs> we'll give them present audience. Go, bring them. You see this chase is hotly followed, friends. Turn head and stop pursuit, for coward dogs most spend their mouths when what they seem to threaten runs far before them. Good, my sovereign, take up the English short and let them know of what a monarchy you are the head. Self-love, my liege, is not so vile a sin as self-neglecting. From our brother of England? From him, and thus he greets your majesty. He wills you in the name of God Almighty that you divest yourself and lay apart the borrowed glories that by gift of heaven, by law of nature and of nations longs to him and to his heirs, namely the crown and all wide stretched honors that pertain by custom and the ordinance of times unto the crown of France. That you may know, tis no sinister nor no awkward claim, picked from the wormholes of long vanished days, nor from the dust of old oblivion raked. He sends you this most memorable line and every branch truly demonstrative, willing you overlook this pedigree. 
And when you find him evenly derived from his most famed of famous ancestors, Edward III, he bids you then resign your crown and kingdom indirectly held from him, the native and true challenger. <clears throat> or else what follows? Bloody constraint. For if you hide the crown even in your hearts, there will you rake for it. Therefore in fierce tempest is he coming, in thunder and in earthquake, like a jove, that if requiring fail, he will compel. And bids you in the bowels of the Lord deliver up the crown and to take mercy on the poor souls for whom this hungry war opens his vasty jaws. And on your head, turning the widow's tears, the orphan's cries, the dead men's blood, the privy maiden's groans for husbands, fathers, and betrothed lovers that shall be swallowed in this controversy. This is his claim, his threatening, and my message. Unless the Dauphin be in presence here, to whom expressly I bring greeting to. For us, we will consider of this further. Tomorrow shall you bear our full intent back to our brother of England. For the Dauphin, I stand here for him. What's to him from England? Scorn and defiance, slight regard, contempt, and anything that may not misbecome the mighty cinder doth he prize you at. Thus says my king, and if your father's highness do not, in grant of all demands at large, sweeten the bitter mock you sent his majesty, he'll call you to so hot an answer of it that caves and wombi voltages of France shall chide your trespass and return your mock and second accent of his ordinance. Say, if my father rend fair return, it is against my will, for I desire nothing but odds with England. To that end, as matching to his youth and vanity, I did present him with the Paris balls. He'll make your Paris Louvre shake for it, were it the mistress court of mighty Europe. And be assured, you'll find a difference, as we his subjects have in wonder found between the promise of his greener days and these he masters now. Now he weighs time even to the utmost grain that you shall read in your own losses if he stay in France. Tomorrow. Shall you know our mind at full? Dispatch us with all speed, lest that our king come here himself to question our delay, for he is footed in this land already. You shall be soon dispatched with fair conditions. A night is but small breath and little pause to answer matters of this consequence. Lovely. Thank you all so much. Um, Naz, I want to start with you. Tell us about, so Exeter just seems to like come into his own in this scene. Tell us about Exeter in this, in your experience. Yeah, I feel like he's just like really excited that like he gets to kind of do, I feel like he's usually just like cheerleading, ex, um, he's usually cheerleading uh, Henry V like on the sidelines, but like he's like actually able to like kind of say his mind and he has the utility of Henry's words to like go behind. So I feel like he's just really excited <laughs> to finally say what he wants to do. Cause I feel like he was holding back a lot in the last scene where yeah. with the traitors, like he kind of went off a little bit with his bedfellow line, but you could tell he really wanted to do more than just arrest them. So I feel like now he's like, ah, I finally get to, to get yeah. some oomph. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you become, you become the messenger, which is so wonderful because this message is like real fierce and um and and very very bold and this i i love this bit about um 
the the caves and wumi voltages of France, um, they'll return the mock because they're going to hear the echo of the cannons, which is like a very strange convoluted image. But it's really it's like essentially France is going to shake for it, which you're, you're about to say with the yeah. Anyway, I just I love I love his energy in this scene. I really I really enjoyed your reading. That was really fun. <laughs> um, wonderful. So let us turn to the to the French. Um, so we we get to a little taste here of the French king um, who and I'm so sorry I was going back and I realized I said the wrong actor's name when I was talking about who played Exeter is Brian Blessed is his name not Brian Bedford I don't know who that is um, and then Paul Schofield one of the great Shakespearean actors of the 20th century um, plays uh, the French king in the Kenneth Branagh one. Um, he's also the the King Lear in the direction in the movie directed by uh, Peter Brook. If anyone has not seen it, it's a very dark version of King Lear, one of my favorites. Um, yeah, fun time. So, what are our impressions of the French court, French king and dauphin and constable? What are your impressions of this of this court? I I just find it hard. I can imagine for a father to be like, my son sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's kind of what strikes me. And there's um, God, this impotent thing he says to him. Uh, self, what is it? Self. Oh, uh, self-love. Yeah, self-love as self-neglecting. And rather than just saying anything back, he just was like, yeah, what is Exeter? I can't even, I can't even <laughs> fuck with that. What does Exeter want to say? Like, that's just, it's rough, you know? It's rough. Because I think he's actually, um, he's saying some pretty logical things. <laughs> King, you know? And it's, it's just stupefying to me that after he gets his ass handed to him in Act One by Henry, that the Dauphin would still be like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, like just yeah. double down on his Trumpism. <laughs> Sorry, I had to go there. I had to go there. Sorry. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> Colin, your response. <laughs> oh, I was reading just the text of this. Yeah, the the brattiness really jumps out from this character. And I guess just knowing that this character is one of a father and son pair. Um, and how bratty the lines are. I really read it as a, a, a younger character, like counterpart comparable to um, Henry. But uh, when we were watching the Branagh version, um, it's a much older actor that's cast. Mm. And so I, I, I find myself trying to figure out like what, if there's anything like within the text that suggests a specific age or if it can really mm. be cast anyway because um, I think we kept throwing around the word petulant and I think that's the, the best <laughs> yeah, yeah. that we have to describe him here. Just the overconfidence too, which is, mm -hmm. which is obvious, it's usually tied with youth, but as we found, it doesn't always have to be. Um, <laughs> but just, I, I agree with the Henry parallel a lot, or at least he views himself mm -hmm. as a foil to Henry, even if no one else does. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you know what? I got this. I'm going to be just as warlike and I'm, I'm going to be better. And I'm going to, I'm going to joke too and make fun of him for once not being as um, 
like as cool as he is now. Mm-hmm. And I, he, he has those lines towards the end there where he's talking about like the youth of uh, Henry. And I get that's a characterization that he's had for a while, but I feel like a thing about him being one, the, the child when daddy's in the room. <laughs> um, and uh, um, a mini box moment. Uh, when I'm a character, I, I try to approach it from a querying lens, um, less whether or not you that it's like exists within the text that you could do a queer reading of a character, but more would the text actively work against me if I tried to do this? And um, it's a lot of what you guys were talking about earlier, using the word boy specifically, um, immediately snapped in my head a line in at the end of Coriolanus where um, Caius Martius mm. and oh God, who's his counterpart, Ophidius. Ophidius. Like, yep, they're Woo-hoo. all tied up and he calls him a boy. And um, <laughs> it's an age old reading that's like, oh, two men fighting each other, like aggression is counterpart to what? And so um, <laughs> I feel like, even specifically with like outsider characters, characters with the opposite opinion, you often see those as like um, open bait to use to queer character. Um, specifically, again, Coriolanus, that is often um, the most common one I've seen as mm-hmm. never overtly, but like it's the, the themes are there, the themes are present. Um, I know in Branagh's Much Ado, they, they toss it on um, Don John. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, just by uh, being... But by, by being the outsider here and that, that that stuff they're talking about youth and just calling him a boy, it, it I feel like it could play into the themes. But um, also like we were talking about earlier, how um, we've seen this change in King Henry. Um, this is moving away from queering discourse, but we've seen this change as an audience. Um, they've seen the change in King Henry, but like the French court isn't really privy to that. Yeah. Um, so it's the fun little dramatic irony of me talking about like, oh, he's still a child. Meanwhile, like cut to him, like, I'll kill them all. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, oh, yeah. Also, sorry. The go dramaticness ahead. Of sending the Paris balls. Like, I'm sorry that whenever <laughs> there's such an act of drama, like <laughs> I know that might not be appealing to a uh, Shakespeare's time queer identity, but that definitely taps into like contemporary identities. <laughs> I actually think in Shakespeare's time that, that that undertone might would would have been there a little bit, right? That uh, going back to what Andrew was saying about dueling, right? Because it's actually at this time, uh, also tennis is becoming popular among fashionable young men as a, as a sort of less lethal uh, uh, alternative to um, to fencing, but the the sort of the, the, one of the associations that made tennis such a sort of disreputable or uh, uh, practice was uh, the sort of insinuation of, of, of homosexuality that was involved, like young men going and they're playing tennis and then, and then they're going and having sex with each other, right? Anytime uh, there's homosocial male bonding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also I think there's a, the, a, a, a that also is going to the sort of this like, uh, the Dauphin trying to set himself up as the foil for, for Henry, right? There's kind of this uh, inversion or repetition as farce of, um, of the Hotspur how relationship, uh, yeah. right? The, the, in, 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 the, in Henry the Fourth, part one and two, or Henry the Fourth, part one, uh, 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 Hotspur sort of represents uh, what, 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 how sort of is supposed to be, right? Or, or, or aspires to, or maybe what Henry the Fourth wishes how was. 
Uh, and here we get a little bit of the thing of, 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 of the Dauphin uh, also is put in contrast to, to Henry, but in a way that makes Henry seem better. And, and also we might get a little bit of the French king wishing that his son was more yes. like Henry V. And yes, absolutely. talking onto that hot Hotspur thing just for a sec is also that like, we know Hotspur is known a bit almost for his petulance and his anger, but it's backed up with experience. So even right, though yeah. it's hilarious, it's <laughs> at times, um, it's, it's also like who he is and he's a great warrior where we don't have that with Dauphin. So, and also because he's French and you know the how much the English, just even without the, the war in this, they just hate the French. That it's like, <laughs> just being like, oh, he's trying to be hot for now. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> we liked him even though we killed him. <laughs> well, and I yeah. think the, the fathers and sons. Yeah, oh, sorry, go ahead, Zoe. Zoe I, I was just gonna say, I love like how obvious it is that this is for an English audience. Yeah. Just, like, <laughs> off what like the French king literally has a whole speech about like how they got so fucked by the black prince of Wales. <laughs> Like, in what world would they actually be talking about their losses and, like, how the English kicked their ass so many times? Like, you can just hear the audience sort of cheering. Yeah. Yes. Scene, and all, also, I think I'm reading this right, but is it, the king is kind of making this allusion to, like, they messed up our vineyards? Yeah. Is that, am I reading that right? Which I think is just like a very like kind of stereotypical jab at, at French, you know? Like he's like, he's like, they killed everyone and they messed up our winemaking. <laughs> right? Am I reading that right? Or am I, I, I think you're it? right. I think because okay. they're talking about how they deface the countryside. Right, to right. To us, like yeah. countryside in France equals like yummy the wine. patterns that, <laughs> that by God and by French fathers have 20 <laughs> years been made. Those it was a great were... vintage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that's very much um, to an English audience's amusement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think just the, to go to the fathers and something, because we had that, right, in Henry the Fourth, Part One of like, in the first scene, Henry's like, oh, I wish that some little freaking fairy would have exchanged Hotspur for Hal, and then I would have Hotspur as mine, and he would have... And there is something here, it's sort of a, like what I would like to call a sort of implied antithesis where the other half of the antithesis isn't really said out loud, but it's implied where the French king, when he's actually talking about Edward and Edward's son, Edward, very confusing, Edward the Black Prince, who was Richard II's father, who was this great warrior who basically like kind of single-handedly conquered France, right? Um, and this is where Henry's claim is coming from. But there, there does seem to be, even though it's talking about the destruction of France, there does seem to be a yearning for a son like that, a sort of hero like that for a son who would, who would go and go forth and just mash the English. Yeah, um, that's that's true. It's kind of like a hesitant reverence or something. Yeah. <laughs> Again, very more... English perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Andrew, go ahead. <laughs> okay, I've got like a um, uh, Lord Chamberlain's men backstage flight of fancy Easter egg <laughs> thing here. In the Dauphin's first speech, and probably this verges into conspiracy theory, so I'm going to I'm going to be like <laughs> aliens. But um, in the first speech, he says, uh, no, let us do it with no show of fear. No more than if we heard that England were busy with the Whitson Morris dance. And also this is because <gasps> I was thinking about 
um, actors who are missing from this play. Oh my and God. I wonder if it's a dig at Kemp, who, yes. who of course around this time was doing it, like you mentioned, his dance off to wherever he went, uh, <laughs> Norwich or somewhere. And uh, uh, he's talking about um, Henry as in his uh, Falstaff um, orbit, right? His, his, his earlier Henry, his Hal, uh, who of course would be associated with the Morris dance if that's uh, Kemp who probably would have played Falstaff. So it's a, it could be a double, it's a dig at um, Kemp himself, who's no longer acting with us. He's off dancing his way to Norwich or whatever. Um, okay, so that's my conspiracy theory. I Crazy. love that. I love that. specific <laughs> reference. Yeah. Uh, especially considering that it's, it seems to strain credibility, credulity a little bit that the Dauphin would know what the Wits and Morris dance was. Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> Very right? specific reference. Well, and there's, I think there's a lot of those sort of in references. Like I remember um, when Andrew and I were just uh, in Hamlet when we were performing in Japan and there's this wonderful line that Polonius has about like, oh yes, I, I played Caesar. You know, I was killed in the Capitol, Brutus killed me. And it's very likely that the actor who played Polonius was killed by the actor who played Hamlet, which is going to happen, you know, again, that probably the Burbage was probably Hamlet and Brutus and that they have this thing. It's like, oh man, Burbage is always killing that one actor in every play. And I, I love that idea that there's like these in-jokes because I know that, you know, we all do that. If you've been in a show, in multiple shows with someone, you're like, ah, you were my brother and now you're my wife. You know, it's like, it, you, you just like create all of these weird like strange personal families to do with like the very different relationships that you have with people on stage. So I, I love those little in references because I think they must have put in something to amuse themselves too. You know? I mean, Ariana was known. Um, she kept getting roles when we were kids, uh, killing my our middle sister. So yes. I <laughs> multiple times. Poor Natasha. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I do. Yeah, I, I think you're right, though, Jesse, that, that the Morris dance is it's an awfully specific um, and not just a Morris dance, but a Whitson, which is like, right, the Feast of Pentecost, I think, is, is, is what this is associated with or something. I, I was looking that up. But yeah, it is it, it definitely we're, we're seeing a different court, uh, I think, is the important thing. This is a different court and there's factions and and we didn't really talk that much about the constable, but he definitely seems to not be very much into the Dauphin. Um, seems to uh, have some, as we're going to, uh, as we're going to see with uh, one of my favorite scenes, them talking about their horses and their mistresses and their armors. Um, there, there, there seems to be quite a bit of competition between these, these two. Wonderful. Well, were there any sort of final thoughts on Act Two before we go into the reading? Is it the Battle of Cressy? Is that right? I think so. Cressy. Cre I don't know. Oh boy. Okay. People who speak French, yeah. help me out here. <laughs> yeah, it's it, the only thing is 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 an emphasis thing where you just equal emphasis, but it doesn't really Cressy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, I was, Christ, Christ. I was having fun with Wikipedia and that one earlier. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that was bad. That was bad for the French. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good look. <laughs> <laughs>
I also just wanted to say, Colin, that um, your, your comment about the, the Coriolanus and the, the sort of homoeroticness that sort of an undertone, there is some of the language in there having just done a, a reading of it last summer um, that is so openly erotic. It's like, oh, I had this dream. We were down and we were like fisting each other's throats and we were, do it's like, it's like so overt. It's kind of like, I, I, it would be very difficult, I think, to, um, to, to sort of ignore it if you were to do it in Play a production. Play it straight, if you will. <laughs> Play it straight, if you will. <laughs> like, it's sort of like, you are going against the text if you do that. You know what I mean? Like, there, there's something <laughs> a little bit super overt about that. Um, I mean, Shakespeare was a dirty, dirty boy. There's just no way boy. around that. Well, and also there is, there's interesting queering that happens even within just the company itself, right? Because it was all, it was an all male company. Right. And so by and I, I just mean that he, was, that he was so sexual, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. I also think that they were living in a, a very sexual images. time. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, our idea of like the British as being like very uptight and that comes from the Victorians that that is much later. And as all of our teachers at Lambda used to say, the Victorians ruined everything. Right. They ruined everything. And really, having recently read a biography of uh, having just read a biography of Victoria, she herself was actually a very sexualized person, sort of oversexed person. But her husband, Albert, was very prudish. And so actually a lot of the things we associate with the Victorians were actually coming from his prudishness, um, which is just kind of interesting that, you know, <laughs> there is a certain piercing that's named after him, which after his prudish disposition is kind of wonderful. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> shall we end our discussion about two? <laughs>